to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Hi, it's John J. Wiley. The Law Radio Show is honored and thrilled to be part of the Federation for American Immigration Reform's Hold the Feet to the Fire Radio Row event where 71 of the nation's top talk shows are doing their shows and we're one of them. And we are doing this at the fabulous Park Phoenix Hotel just blocks from the Capitol building. As a matter of fact, that was the Capitol building earlier with at least 50 of America's top sheriffs and law enforcement officers, some real heroes and dedicated public servants that I met today. As a matter of fact, let's get to our first guest on the law enforcement radio show. Coming to you from the Federation for American Immigration Reform's Hold Defeat the Fire Radio Row event at the beautiful Park Phoenix Hotel in Washington, D.C. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by special guest Derek Maltz. Derek is retired DEA agent, right? Yes, sir. How long did you do in DEA? 28 years, but there's an interesting background to it. My father was 30 years in the DEA, and I started on surveillance at 13 years old with the old man. And you didn't have a choice in the matter back then. Exactly. Back get in the car the- and shut up. Get in the car, hang out, get in the back seat, and I'm taking to follow some fugitives. And the next thing you know, I'm in, a, in an apartment complex in Far Rockaway with my friend, getting an apartment for the girlfriend or the wife or whatever she was to try to tell the other units. His call sign at the time was 701. I was 701 and a half. Oh, gotcha. So it's That's kinda, phenomenal. It's interesting. My wife, who I met years after I retired from police work, and by the way, for those who don't know, I was detailed the DEA out of Baltimore. And the cool thing about that is you're deputized as a U.S. Marshal, so you have powers throughout the United States. And we had exactly. to go to Miami and other things, other parts of Maryland, D.C. So it was kind of an ego boost. But she said, what's it like, really? Is it like the television surveillance? I said, no, it's nothing like that at all. The best vehicle we have for tailing people, a yellow cab. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, the yellow construction trucks were great, too. Yeah, well, the seized cabs and the seized limos are always good vehicles. And yeah. The customized vans that were seized were always cool. But uh, there, there is an interesting story, though, about the seized cabs in New York. It was a famous story of an agent that used to, because he went through a nasty divorce, so he used to take the cab out and collect fares <laughs> after hours. It's a famous DEA story, but that's in the old days. That doesn't happen anymore. Those things, they're very rare. Very, very rare. But, but we remember them forever Absolutely. when they do occur. One of the things that, that I did want to point, we had a conversation about immigration, cartels, drugs. I, I wanted to point out the conversation about surveillance is, you know, I would leave. Go to do do my job, and I get on our target, and next thing you know, it would be 18, 19 hours later. And yeah. you, you couldn't let up until you're absolutely is nothing else you could do. Exactly. And it's, this is back in the day, the clone pagers and all that I stuff. Know. Uh, so you'd get, the, you'd get the pager, you'd have duty for 24 hours, you had to log every phone call that came in. and Exactly. And especially most good cops are very dedicated and absolutely. they're committed. They don't want to leave their partners behind. So that also becomes a conflict when you're on the street and you have other things going on, family arrangements, and then all of a sudden, you know, something comes up, the bell rings, you have to be there for the guys. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's a... It's well, I didn't a, never want to leave them or let them down. Never. And, and the, the fear, the absolute fear was twofold. Number one, that I might do something to hurt an innocent bystander. 
another one is that I might do something or not do something to have my side partner hurt. Exactly. You'd ever want to have any of your, your buddies uh, get injured during the line of duty, and unfortunately, that's going to happen. It happens. That's the nature of the business. Before we get in this conversation, there's so much we're going to talk about. And I already know right now we're going to have a law enforcement show again in the future. Because we've met off air. We talked and talked and talked. There's so many stories in common. One of the big things, obviously, is Hollywood does not get the whole surveillance thing right. They don't get the portrayal of police and law enforcement right. I'm not getting into stereotypes or all that stuff. But the, the news media and Hollywood really don't portray the immigration problem that we have coming from our southern border accurately at all is so biased and distorted from everyone i've talked to i'm not an expert but i know there's a strong connection between the southern border and the drug cartels with the immigration can you elaborate on that yes so number one and probably most importantly is that according to all the experts 90 percent of the drugs that are coming into this country come through the southwest border again i'm not a big believer in statistics but I say, based on my experience, the majority, the overwhelming majority of drugs are coming because we have a wide open border. Right. The bad guys are going to take complete advantage of the vulnerabilities. Just like when we do our cases, we look at the vulnerabilities of the bad guys. Right. right? And so when they see these open borders and they have the ability to use these diversionary tactics where they'll send a whole bunch of like migrants to come in, you know, one side of the border and then they'll slip in, you know, some guys with backpacks and liquid meth, for example. They do this deliberately to get the drugs in the country. But more importantly, they are so sophisticated, they have the most unbelievable transportation methods using tractor trailers, rail cars, 747s, Cessnas, you name it, submarines. submarines. But actually, I was telling somebody earlier, one of my, there's two stories I'll tell you about smuggling drugs that always stand out in my mind. One is the famous puppy story where they buy the puppies in Colombia, they cut the puppies' bellies open, Mm -hmm. and then they put the packets of heroin in the puppies' bellies. When the puppies get to America, they open up the puppies and they take the heroin out. That was probably the one that drew a lot of attention because there's a lot of dog lovers in America. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I'm one of them. Yeah, me too. And my wife hears this. She's going to absolutely, she'll be crying. Just go and on. she'll say, I can't sleep tonight. Yeah, go online now and check it out and see what it looks like. You'll, you'll really be sick. But the, the other method that was amazing to me is that they would take like liquid heroin and throw it in a bathtub. And then put all the clothing in the bathtub, and, and the clothes would absorb the liquid, which was heroin. Then once it dried, they'd pack it up in a suitcase, they'd ship it into New York, for example. Then they'd take the same clothes, throw them in a bathtub, and they use an extraction process with chemicals to get the heroin out. It's so unbelievable, right? So, yeah, we. but the problem, George, I'm sorry, Jay, is that we have an unbelievable demand. Right. So as long as the demand is here, these cartels are a multi-billion dollar enterprise, so they're going to do whatever it takes to get the stuff here. And right now, it's it's kind of counterproductive to get into the whole conversation of which came first, the, the, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Uh, did the demand come first or did the supply come first? They're going to find a way to get it here. Well, I'll give you an example. And there's a direct correlation between illegal immigration. From what I understand, it's controlled by the drug cartels. Yeah, the drug they control cartels, everything coming nothing's the happening at these corridors at the border without the cartels controlling and making money. Go talk to the experts. And I never worked on the border, so I'm not claiming to be a border expert. But what I do know is these guys are super dedicated. They have very dangerous jobs, and they know what they're doing. The other people you need to talk to, well, I'm sure you have. 
is the ranchers oh, yeah. that live on the border and how they have to live because thousands of people are crossing into their property. They're afraid to go out at night. Some of those ranchers are very courageous. Right? Yeah. They go out there and they'll do whatever they have to do to protect their family and property. But that's the federal government's responsibility to protect the American citizens, not these poor ranchers on the border trying to earn a living. But going back to this whole crisis, if you look at, for example, last year alone, 32,000 Americans died from synthetic opioids in 2018. The year before, there was 29,000. Now, the reason I focus in on synthetic opioids is because that's primarily fentanyl, right? right? Fentanyl is coming from very sophisticated labs in China and also in Mexico. They work together. They have this dangerous partnership, Chinese organized crime and Mexican cartels. But here's the deal, George. Uh, I keep saying George. I'm that's sorry. Right. Call me whatever you want. The last guy was George. So anyway, Jay... These guys recognize that they make more money if they could buy a kilogram of fentanyl for $5,000 in China and then just mix it up or create counterfeit pills and then make $2 million off one kilogram of this substance. That's a lot of money. That's a huge amount. So instead of like worrying about the farming and the weather and the water and the terrain and, oh, my God, there's so many issues when you have the poppies and everything like that. It's just simpler to buy it already made in labs. So now they're actually generating their own labs in Mexico where they're making it themselves. The problem is is that the kids and the people in America are taking substances and they have no idea that these guys have no quality control on the mixture of fentanyl. You have no, literally no idea what you're getting. You have no idea. So I'll give you a really good example that shows the public the volume of this problem. So in Phoenix, Arizona, which is an unbelievable place, and my buddy used to run the DEA down there for years. So here's the deal. In 2015, they seized zero blue Mexican oxy pills, right? In 2016, they seized 20,000 pills. In 17, it was 38,000. In 18, it was 380,000. And this year alone, about a month ago, there was unbelievable stories in the news. Over 1.1 million already seized. Now, think about it. You've been doing this. And that's the amount that they caught. That's what they caught. So can you imagine what got through? And that's what the other thing, when you talk about the border, the politicians are very misleading to the people because they say, okay, we only seized X amount of kilos at the non-POEs, right? Right. But how do they know what got through? There's no way you can tell. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. And here's one of the things we're going to have to talk about is the the why. And I'm not sure why. Maybe you can speculate more. We'll talk about that when we return. This is Law Enforcement Hour, special guest Derek Maltz, retired DEA agent. We'll be right back. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. I have some exciting news to share with you. You are going to love my Your Diet Do-Over Do-It-Yourself course on HarmonyWithFood.com, which means you could do everything at your own pace. I put my heart and soul into this course. Have you been on every diet there is only to gain the weight back? If your relationship with food is, well, not that good, you should purchase the Your Diet Do-Over course. Go over to HarmonyWithFood.com, click the Your Diet Do-Over tab, and get started today. Back to our conversation with Derek Maltz, retired DEA agent on the Law Enforcement Today show. Derek, first of all, I always, I'm really bad at this. Thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for your service. You know, I you hear that more you know, now than retired than everything I've worked. Well, you know what? Baltimore is a tough city to work. I know a lot of people that have worked there, and I, and I really applaud you for being on the streets of Baltimore trying to protect people every day. So 
I know you had a uh, tough job. It was tough. It was it was very violent. And uh, but there's a lot of awesome people in Baltimore. Oh, absolutely. And you always say this: the, the even the criminal element, the people who that occasionally got in trouble, they usually weren't the ones that would hurt you. It was you know a very small percentage of people that were very very violent. And right. There's enough of them to make life miserable for. Not just people in Baltimore, but all around the area. Because they travel. They steal cars. They carjack. They travel. I know, yeah. I've been through that. And no matter how nice a neighborhood you live in, you're not immune. You are a target. One thing you don't want to do is if you travel into Baltimore and you live in Northern Virginia, is follow ways because it always takes you through West Baltimore. (laughs) And in the middle of the summer, it's not cool. Here's something else, a good piece of advice. Not just for Baltimore, but D.C., uh, say, say Pittsburgh, wherever. The criminals, if you come out of town and say you do a day trip and you bring your car, it's got Virginia tags, you go to Pittsburgh, park in public parking near a big tourist area, they target cars with out-of-state tags because if they get arrested, the chances you're in return for court are slim to none. Yeah. And they know that. They know this. Yeah, they are very calculating when they make these decisions. It's not by coincidence. And no, and it's, I don't think they've had a finishing school, for lack of better words, like have a boarding school. Hey, here's be a better criminal. Yeah. But this is stuff that's taught in our prison systems. Right. Starting at juvenile all the way up. And it's something that occurs with low-level street criminals all the way up to the high end. Exactly. And that's why, like we always used to say, like the cartels, they learn from all the mistakes that they make, and then they study this stuff. They have lawyers that study the documents, the court documents. They get full disclosure. And then the next time, they're a little bit smarter. The problem for law enforcement is, like, technology right now is so advanced that they're beating us with the new technology because they don't have a bureaucracy. They don't have resources. They They don't have a limited budget. Limited budget, I meant. They don't have the ability to follow processes, and otherwise they get time off and stuff like that. Like law enforcement, God bless them because they have a tough job, and then we make it harder sometimes putting all this added bureaucracy on it. But bottom line is, is that the technology that they're using is because they've learned over the years that if you're talking on the phone, the cops might be listening. Absolutely. So now when they use encrypted apps from all over the world and no one has the ability to intercept those apps, that's really problematic for the country. And I've been following this for like 20 years, uh, watching this evolve, and it's very concerning to me. But of course, our Congress is still looking at rotary phones of 1968. Well, that's part of the problem is they, they address the investigation part of this from what I've seen from old technology. Back in the day, back in my day, yeah, we had clone beepers. Yeah. And from that, you get a list of numbers, you do surveillance, you find out who the number's registered to, blah, 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 blah. Right. Find the location where they live, get a pen registered device. Yeah. And then from there, you get a wiretap if right. you're successful. And that's all part of it. None of that applies anymore. Well, like I used to say, 1968, there was one rotary phone in, in a whole block, right? And it was registered to Derek Maltz. It never changed because you couldn't change the, the phone right. registration, right? The subscriber. And then other people in the community might even use the phone. They didn't have a phone. Right. Now, you got traffickers running around with bags. They have 20 phones in a bag, and they're just picking whatever phone they want, and then law enforcement's got to track that stuff? And God bless her. My mother, she's got like four burner phones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we always say to her, what are you, like some sort of drug trafficker? That's funny. What do you need this for? She goes, I just don't want to have to pay a monthly fee. Oh, that's hysterical. Good for <laughs> and her. And she watches cute, uh, you know, these TV shows that yeah. they sell products. Hey, I got so many minutes, I'll be buying another phone. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, it, the technology has far outpaced the resources, and more importantly, uh, the people to pull the purse strings, which would be, whether it be city level, county level, state level, or federal level, they don't tend to know what's going on. And worst of all, in my opinion, they don't tend to listen. Well, let me just point out something, because this caught my attention. The Washington Post had a story on a farmer from Minnesota, a certain town in Minnesota, 
And basically that particular town has like the highest, you know, alien, you know, illegal alien population in the country, right, per capita. And he was talking about how it's just draining all the resources of the of the county, of the of the city. And like they got to get new schools, right? Because they have like 35% of these people don't speak English, you know? Right. And so they have all these new demands, but their budgets aren't going up. Right. So who do you think gets hurt? Like law enforcement. They don't get the necessary enhancements they need for training or the, the new uh, police cars and weapons or whatever it is, you know, bulletproof vests. And, and the problem is with dumping money uh, to accommodate these illegal citizens instead of helping out our law enforcement and others that first responders and others that are serving the community. So it becomes And then super they turn around complex. and blame the law enforcement. Yeah, it's super complex. It's not really uh, – it's amazing it could happen in this country because it's such a great country, but it's happening all over the place. Do you feel that – and this is from your, your combined experience in DEA uh, and also where you're at now and the things you do, uh, like today. Does, do the government people listen? Are they willing to hear what's going on? Honestly, Jay, my personal opinion, and I have a lot of experience to make this statement, the majority of the people that I've met in this town, which I call the land of the make-believe, are way more concerned about their own personal egos and their bank accounts and their future jobs than the uh, public safety of the American citizens. I've seen it repeatedly. I could sit here and tell you story after story. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the law enforcement people that I met, 99% of them, are the greatest Americans ever. They dedicate themselves. They put their lives on the line. They sacrifice their family time, the soccer events, the high school events, the the weddings, right? Because they want to go out and they want to be able to protect the communities in this country. And they're not looking to make a million dollars a year. They just want to do the right thing. It's mission. It's all about the mission. I believe it's a real vocation. Oh, God, I mean, there, yeah. there are people that come in because they need to pay bills or they have yeah. benefits. But they de- either they get the bug or they wash out. And by the way, I mean, let me just say this. When I say cops, I mean all law enforcement. I, I agree. Corrections officers all the way through. Right. And you know what? Everyone is – every. The, the, it's a human nature thing. So there's jerks in every agency. Right. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're a fed or you're a state and local. And there's also really, really talented people in every agency. So my goal was always to synchronize the efforts using the best and brightest. Right. Those that want to do the right thing. Forget about the badge. Forget about where you come from. We're all doing the same thing. If you have kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, you, it's our future. Right. So we want to do the right thing for the public. They pay us a lot of money. And so that's kind of like my experience. I've been fortunate. I've been around some of the best and brightest cops in the nation. That's what it's all about. I, I used to think when I was a young police, I was very, very aggressive, very proactive. A lot of people can't do that nowadays oh for many God. different reasons. And I, I wouldn't advocate it. But when I got promoted to sergeant, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me and one of the worst things that ever happened to me. Because then all of a sudden I had to look at things differently. And the one thing I did not want was I didn't want a squad of guys like all like me. Because you got to have some people that are good report takers. You exactly. got to have people that are good paperwork. You got to have the go getters. You got to have a yep. good mix of talent. Yes. But you've got to have. And everybody I worked with, exception of a couple people, and they were drummed out or arrested, they got to have integrity. Absolutely. And if they say, this is what happened, you could take their word to the bank. Right, exactly. And so basically the the difficult part for a leader, a sergeant or whatever, a special agent in charge, is that you have to be able to put the pieces of your team together and use the strengths of everyone. Mm -hmm. Because everyone adds value in some way. The difficulty becomes sometimes that people don't like to accept, like, maybe the administrative role. But that's part of the game. Right, you have to have the it. paperwork done. And we got to have people. And here's the reason why. 
our communities deserve the best we can give. Yes, hundred percent. Whether it be a federal, whether it be a local agency, a state agency, a county agency, we want our emergency responders, our first responders, our, our law enforcement officers to be the very best and to be on their game. Exactly. Because if I call nine one one. I, I don't want someone with a horrible attitude coming to my place. Right. You I want, want well-trained. You want it to be well-trained and very professional. And from what I see going on around America, unfortunately, the cops are very professional. Yes, they are. In many cases, they are well-trained. But it seems to me that there's a lack of support because of the political climate that we're in. And the greatest example is from my old city, New York City. The NYPD is probably one of the best police departments in the world, and I learned a lot from NYPD. But I'll tell you, when I see buckets of water and buckets being thrown at these young cops and then to see them sit there and do nothing and then have this political pressure over their head, I mean, that really makes me sick. And yeah. honestly, i tell you another thing, and I don't have all the facts, so I don't want to talk out of line here. I don't know the current commissioner, but I have a lot of friends in the NYPD. And I, uh, that poor Eric Gardner guy who died yep. and the, you know, the chokehold. And I don't know what the policy is of NYPD. I'm sure he violated the policy. But the cop was asked to go over there and help out. He was a pretty good guy, I heard. Mm -hmm. And then the guy's fired. And, you know, he's suing the city and everything like that. But I can tell you, that most of the cops I've talked to are really dead against, like, not standing up for the cops that are putting their life on the line. We're talking with special guest Derek Maltz, retired DEA agent. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you looking for great products that can be game changers for people, for their physical health, for their mental health, for their overall well-being? Go to letpops.com. That's letpops.com. I take these Juice Plus products. They make a world of difference for me. Better energy. I sleep better every night. Full night sleep every night. Zero leg cramps and more. Many people will tell you about the wonderful things that these products do for them. Plus, it can be a phenomenal business opportunity. You can help people improve their lives and for a very small fee, get a complete backend, complete website, zero inventory, no shipping, none of that stuff. Get full details on our website, letpops.com. That is letpops.com. Our conversation with Derek Maltz, retired DEA agent. This is the Law Enforcement Show. I'm John J. Wiley. I remember Derek being, I'm not quite sure of the year, but I was a young patrolman and the news broke about DEA agent in Mexico, Kiki Camarena, that was missing. Right. And there was a, everybody, everybody was looking for this guy, even us guys in Baltimore looking for information. And it wasn't past, we didn't have computers and all that stuff like now. It took a couple of days and then we found out that he, yeah, he was killed. And that had a huge effect on people like me, even in Baltimore, didn't know him. Then we had a guy who was detailed, he's a Baltimore police, he was detailed to a DEA task force out of Baltimore, doing an investigation, doing an undercover buy, sent into a room with a body wire on, no guns on us, and his name was Marcellus Ward. It was the first line of duty him, death yeah. that I'd experienced as a, as a rookie police. And, and they shot and killed this, this man, this, this heroic guy, in cold blood, right on tape. You know, I talked to his son. From that day, I'll never forget those two guys. One, and I didn't know either one of them. Right. Never met either one of them, but we worked in the same field. Yes. And that stuff runs very deep. Right. So let me give you a real quick stories here about what you just kind of said. So in 1972, my father's partner, Tommy Devine, 
was in a really bad gut battle in a hotel in New York. In 1972, I was nine years old. My father took me to the hospital, the rehab center. He had a bullet in his back. Of course, Frankie Tamilla, his partner, was killed. Ten years later, poor Tom Devine died from that. So then in 1985, of course, you have the famous death of Kiki Camarena and the cartel RCQ, Raul Caro Quintero, who actually did this particular murder, who's now like hiding out in the mountains. And then, of course, the following year, Everett Hatcher was executed by Gus Faraci up there in New York uh, in Staten Island. But... Probably one of the most memorable things is that when I was a young agent, I went to the funeral home, like I think 1987, where there was a young agent, Stastny, that was killed in a by-bust operation in Atlanta and shot in the head on a marijuana bust. And I was there like the first at the funeral home and the funeral director, these crazy funeral directors, showing me where the, the, uh, the bullet entered and exited his head. And so these things have never... I've never forgotten this stuff. And nor do I think I ever will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and I hope these, I never do. And that's what cops go through. That's what agents go through. They put their life on the line. So, yeah, it's very troubling. And the other thing, too, is, Derek, and I don't know how much you saw this you saw because you were in, in the federal level, but every one of the deaths of non-law enforcement people, it, I, I say this all the time, there were kids I met as a young post officer when 10, 11 years old, great kids, and then I was there when they took their last breath because they were 15, 16, they got in the drug game. Yeah. And they wound up shorting the guy whatever reason, and the dealer exactly. shot him on the street. Exactly. I mean, that's why I get crazy in the news where you have like, you know, 20, 30 people shot or killed in Chicago every weekend. We never hear about it. But then, you know, all of a sudden it's a school shooting or, you know, a mall shooting or whatever, and it's, it's news for every day. And, and don't get me wrong. These shootings need to be publicized. We need to figure out what we're doing and how we can do why better. Why do they treat them differently? Why is it different? It's still humans that are getting killed. And I, I was in line. Ireland last year and uh, for my first trip there, and they had like 4.75 million people. At that, they were complaining. They had, a, they had 30 homicides out of 4.75 million yeah. people. I said Baltimore has 660,000 people and yeah. had over 300 yeah. that year. I know. It's amazing. But what are they doing different that we're doing? Right. It's, I, I don't know. I, I think really don't. it's not gun control. I think it's criminal control. Yeah, criminals and the drugs and all the different uh, you know gangs and all the immigration, like the MS-13, as an example. Look at that, cutting hearts out of people. They're chopping up people with machetes. They're going after these young kids and trying to intimidate them to become gang members. And families are being destroyed all over the country because the gang violence is just escalating, by the way, because we're letting these people in and we're not paying attention to what they're doing. And there's not a whole lot more needs to be said about that. Right, exactly. It is what I, it is. If I invite you to my house, I want to know who you are. Right, exactly. And I, I'm not going to invite a pedophile to my house. Right. And, and you're if gonna you're going keep... to be attacking my wife with a machete, I'm not inviting you to my right. house. And you're going to have locks on your door, and you know people are not going to come in unless you know who they are. Exactly. And, Common uh, sense. Well, I think that we have a right to know who these people are that come to our country. I'm, and I work with a lot of people in the radio world that, that have immigrated from Mexico. And we've had this conversation many times, and they're all legal immigrants, and they're they're kind of appalled at what's going on, but then they Absolutely. also feel like it's a personal attack. And it's like, it's not personal. Right. I mean, listen, America loves immigration. It makes the I, country it's a, great. It, it's how we grow. I mean, it's awesome to learn from other people and their cultures and everything like that and the language. I mean, I wish I spoke Spanish. I mean, that's Me a great language. I never learned it. I didn't. I actually went to school for it, but I just didn't retain it. But, you know, it's not about these nice people that are trying to make a better life for themselves and come here legally through the process. It's about these violent criminals that are taking advantage of this country and the poorest borders and the vulnerabilities in our system. 
earlier we talked about the cartels and smuggling narcotics, and they will take the path of least resistance, the one that costs the least amount, they get the most product across. Right, exactly. What I like to say is, look, you're a business uh, man, you want to sell your product for the highest amount of money with your lowest risk. Right. So if you're an entrepreneur in the drug markets, you want to push your products, you want to get as many customers as you can, and you want to avoid prosecution and extradition. That's why the Colombian drug traffickers are so smart and have delegated the operations down to the Mexicans because they don't want the vulnerability of being prosecuted in America. Well, that also applies on a street level. Uh, in exactly. the city I came from, Baltimore. People, we knew who the big heavy hitters yeah, were. Yeah, because they didn't want to touch the product. But we could never get near right. them. They never could... touched it. Uh, we would get their street lieutenants, whatever terms you want yeah, to use, exactly. we'd get them left and right. But the other guys, and all of them, all of them were deeply connected with City Hall. Yeah. They yeah. had deep political ties. They paid a lot of money. I'm not, I won't use, I don't use the term corruption because I can't prove stuff, but it was well known it happened and it happens on a city level. I'm sure it happens on state levels. And I'd even be willing to bet it happens on a federal level Absolutely, to some degree. Yeah. Yep. Because what else makes sense, Derek? Why, why isn't Congress being more proactive about this? Well, again, my, my thought is, is that there's way more going on behind the scenes, but they're self-serving in many ways. They just want to do better for themselves as opposed to do better for America. And it's all about how I appear. Right. The appearance, the to egos. My base. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the votes. When you talk about the votes, I abhor partisan politics. I really do. To me, it's a Chevy versus Ford thing. Right. And they, they flip-flop on what they say left and right. So right. it's about maintaining power and amount of seats you can occupy. So it's really no different than gaining market share from Chevy and Ford, for right, example. Exactly. And by the way, I love both vehicles. I'm not saying I'm <laughs> anti either one. But I don't get why they firmly believe, let's say that where you come from, from New York, why politicians there would think, I'm not going to do anything because a very small vocal minority will protest, howls of protest, if I take a different stance, even though this is adversely affecting the majority of people in my Well, my I mean, listen, every day I wake up, I'm obsessed on something that's happening every day in America, the terror financing coming from Middle Eastern-owned bodegas, grocery stores, and convenience stores, and gas stations, and money's going back to Yemen and to radical terrorist organizations. And NYPD, for an example, greatest department in the world, they were shut down under the Obama administration because of their tactics against Middle Easterners. Well, I got news for you. It's not about Middle Easterners. It's about criminal activity in our country to support terrorists. They're not doing it because they're Middle Easterners. No. They're doing it because it's impacting our country's safety. And God bless them for doing what they did. But right now, as we sit here today, there's money's flowing back through our banking systems back to Yemen to support the radical terrorists like Hezbollah. And we're not going after it like we should because we're afraid how it appears. And that's the part that, that troubles me. Vast majority of people listening right now, if you ask them, do you think that everyone who's Muslim or Middle Eastern is a terrorist? They would say, of course not. That's ridiculous. Right. It's just common sense. Because we have a lot of common sense. Most people do. However, that doesn't mean we should not aggressively go after those who do mean us Right. Harm. So, like, I'll give you a good example, a good question. So, and I was asked uh, in CNN, for example, and others talked to me about this Alabama money laundering thing. I said, look, I don't care if he's Middle Eastern. There's $30 million leaving a convenience store in Alabama going to Yemen. That's uh, suspicious. How does that make sense? That doesn't make sense even for my limited imagination. Right. We're talking with retired DEA agent Derek Maltz. He's got some keen insight they'll be sharing with you in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. 
And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. John J. Wiley, back to our conversation with Derek Maltz on the Law Enforcement Show. Derek, by the way, retired DEA agent, and I actually loved working with them. It was a great agency, and back in the day, they had great parties, the Elliott Ness Night parties, oh, and yeah. they were, well, let me just tell you, they were life-changing <laughs> events. I don't think they do that anymore. No, absolutely not. I mean, times have changed. I mean, there was a time when, like I remember as a young agent, like the best job you can have on surveillance was inside a restaurant surveillance or a bar because you could sit at the bar, drink alcohol, eat food as you're watching the bad guys meet with your informant. That was cool. If you I got never it, got that assignment. Yeah, so I used to like, maybe I'd really start smart sergeants. Yeah, yeah, you had to you had to work hard to get that assignment because then of course you could put in your expense report after it was over and and the government would be paying for that. But there's a lot of stories about that. That doesn't happen anymore though. I've heard that from many in law enforcement that the shift change parties uh, are um, from a bygone era. Oh, yeah. Uh, and th- there's a lot of men and women that we, you talked about earlier. They're very professional. They're very dedicated. They do an awesome job. They're physically and mentally tough. And then I think years of police work or in, in any branch, any level, winds up grinding them down. Right. Um, and they get it, discouraged. Maybe seen too much. Discouraged and cynical because, like, they don't always get support. They're working so damn hard. They're sacrificing their family situations. And then they don't get, like, any love, right? So the media right. hates them. Their bosses are political. They don't really support them. And many times, the politicians in the cities, the mayors, they call out, like, things that they don't, they don't even have the facts. And then they're all of a sudden blaming the cops. So it's not really cool sometimes. And I feel bad, especially for the street cops, because they're the ones that every day wake up. You don't know if you're going to get home. Right. At least as a Fed, you planned operations. You weren't wearing a uniform. Nobody really knew who you were. And so you had uh, less, in my opinion, you had a less- A little bit less exposure. Exposure, yeah. I, I had a, a federal agent on the show earlier. He said the difference for him was that he got the plan of jobs he wanted to do. You guys in right. police good, departments, good he said, in especially patrol, you had to go to everything. Yeah, domestic disputes. And you didn't know what it was. It, it, it was a light-threatening call. It was a car stop that was going to go bad. You had no idea it was going to be. And I always tell people this. The chief complaint I hear so often is- that, I got stopped for speeding or some other ridiculous thing, and he wasn't nice. I don't yeah. think, what do you expect him to be? Right, exactly. You yeah. want to be like the Mr. Softy ice cream man? <laughs> I, first of all, he's got to understand, is this person posing a threat? Am I going to be okay? And then, once they get a chance to know you, oftentimes they'll lighten up quite a bit. Right, the adrenaline's moving. And how many times in your career, I'll give you a quick, quick story. I, I saw two guys... They had a car with DC tags and a Virginia inspection sticker on the windshield uh, at a 7-Eleven in Baltimore. And something about them just didn't seem right. And you, you can't testify it, but something about them made my radar yeah, go the off. Instinct. So I started following them as they're driving their car down the street, and they committed a minor traffic violation. So I pulled them over. Long story short, they had two pounds of marijuana in the car. And you develop probable cause that you can testify to in court. But at that point, I knew something was wrong. 
that was far less dangerous than pulling over someone who ran a stop sign because I have absolutely no idea what they're doing, right. what their story is all point. about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is every day for law enforcement. They have to make these split second decisions and their instinct takes off. I used to refer to it as the pack of wolves in my gut. You got to listen that's to a good the, one. You got to listen to the pack of wolves if they're howling. You do. And that's so much of, I guess that was one of the small differences between being a patrolman in, in the city and working for a federal agency where you got to, to choose. But when you're new, you kind of didn't have a choice. You were given assignment and said, hey, this we're going to do. Figure it out. Yeah. And uh, I did do a surveillance, another story on a drug organization where I was detailed DEA. And I was pulled up and I was in a 1984 Firebird formula <laughs> in plain clothes, big bushy hair, mu- beard, mustache, pierced ear, all that stuff. And literally, just like television, a guy's walking, he has a guitar case, he opens it up and pulls out a sawed-off shotgun. Wow. And I'm there with a 38 revolver. Oh, my God. Looking like the ragman. Yeah. So what happened? What you do? Wait, I took him. uh, He disarmed him verbally. Good, good, No shots fired. Nothing happened. Locked him up. Then get yelled at because why aren't you on the surveillance? Oh, my God. Suppose you got burned by the guy seeing you. That's the things you're like, I didn't think of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So... What we talk about our conversation about, and I don't want to make as much about immigration as there seems to be an attitude of ignoring criminal behavior throughout the United States at all levels. And I'm talking about violent crime, not just petty thefts. I'm not talking about the person smoking weed, which I never really cared about. But we have a problem with, with repeat offenders. We have a problem with violent criminal organizations. You mentioned MS-13. They're very big in, in New York and Long Island. And they tend to go to the suburbs. And Northern Virginia also. But one thing I'll give you, like, example, like, what, what it is, is it's violence that we've never really seen before. I mean, I never was a street cop, but when you're talking about chopping people up with machetes and cutting hearts out and all this stuff. Uh, but, like, there's also a major issue going on right now. So I have a major issue with the sanctuary cities and letting people out of jail and not turning them over to ICE when they have ICE detainers. And there's one story after another when people are actually raping little girls. Right. Or actually, like, in Montgomery County, Maryland there was nine illegals arrested for rape and like the police department, they, they don't want anything out in the media. They try to cover it up. I, this is what I'm hearing, right? Instead of telling the public what's going on because they, they're trying to like distort what the reality is, right? The reality is, is these people shouldn't be here to begin with. If they get caught doing something like this, they need to be thrown out of the country quickly. Yeah, do your time here, then get them yeah, out of here. Get them out. Exactly. And so we have this. What real, is wrong with that? Why do people object to that so much? See, they, they need like, they need to change the definition of illegal. Because how do you say, like, we're going to give illegal aliens health insurance for free? That's like an oxymoron, right? Like, they're illegal. I'd like to get that. Like, they need to be arrested or detained or thrown out of the country if they're illegally here. Isn't that what the word means? Here's one of the ironies. We talked about before going on the air. My grandparents were, were born in Ireland. I'm eligible for dual citizenship, so I applied for Irish citizenship. By the way, I'm not there yet. It's been three months. But one of the first things they show you, and this is a very progressive country with some socialist-leaning tendencies, and they say, if you're going to come here, like a guy like me, you're responsible for your own health insurance. You're not getting anything from us. You get no benefits. You have to be able to afford to live here. Wow. Can you imagine if anyone in the United States government said that? Yeah. The the howls of protest they would get from the, the media. Yet other countries, that's their position, and that's one of our staunchest allies, and it's okay for them. I know. It's amazing. It should be okay for us, too. The fake news media, as the president says, uh, they will continue to attack uh, and and do this kind of stuff, which is really unfair. 
to the public because they deserve to know the truth. They do. And uh, like I said, I don't want to make this all about illegal immigration because we have so much more going on. And in your career, you, we've talked earlier about some of the line of duty deaths and the violence towards our law enforcement officers. It, the bad days historically were the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We had lots of law enforcement officers killed in the United States. We had lots of severely injured. We have more uh, being severely injured and killed today. The numbers are far less. But it seems to me, maybe it's social media, maybe it might, but we seem to be getting more people Facebook living or streaming these assaults from the water buckets to actually violent assaults on, on law enforcement people. And with body cameras, that would have cleared me from 99.9% of the complaints against me right away. Right. Even with body camera video, people, the activists, don't want to hear it. No, and They want to hang the cops out. Yeah, and also there, there's so much editing going on with some of this video footage that's out there in the social media, so it's always going to show the cop doing something wrong. Of course the cop's going to... Uh, punch the guy in the face if he if he does something that hurt, to, to put him in his life in danger, right. right? That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to take down the threat, you know, prevent this threat, this threat from hurting people. And so they don't show the whole story. They only show the side that makes the cop look bad, which is really unfair to the law enforcement and to the public. Why do they do that, you think? Well, it's clear. They have messages. They have certain messages that they want to push out, just like this uh, this border stuff, right? They don't talk about the fact that Lebanese Hezbollah is got these auto car businesses all over our country, and they're buying millions of dollars worth of cars and sending them to Africa to sell to support Hezbollah's worldwide initiative because Iran is not giving them the same level of support anymore. They don't tell you all this stuff. They'll tell you, like, the poor innocent guy running the car business down the road is was was uh, profiled. profiled by the police. Right. They, they, they love to use that term profiling. And I flew up here to D.C. One of the most nerve-wracking things for me is TSA. <laughs> I appreciate what they do, but I'm always afraid I'm going to get stopped and frisked. And maybe that's the old law enforcement background to me. But this idea that we're going to pull over and stop an 83-year-old woman in a wheelchair and pat her down and frisk oh, her yeah. while we won't touch someone else who who is... Yeah. The group of people committing the crimes makes no sense at all. Well, what about this one? You talk about lack of common sense. So I was an armed uh, federal agent going on a plane and basically had the authority to carry the, uh, the weapon on the plane. And then all of a sudden they wanted to search my bag. So I said, well, excuse me, why would you want to search my bag when I have a weapon and three magazines? And they're like, well, sir, you were next up. I goes, no, you don't understand. I that makes no sense. I could take down the plane with this gun if I wanted to. And what's in my bag isn't going to help. So what are you talking about? They had to search my bag because the bureaucracy says search every fourth person. That's right. You can't profile. Because they're so afraid yeah. of being labeled profilers. Yeah. Derek Maltz, thanks so much for coming on Law Enforcement. Very much appreciate it. thank you very much. Look forward to speaking again. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. The Law Enforcement Talk radio show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. We'll be right back.